Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to The Profile. My name's Ian Britton, Premier's Northern Correspondent, and The Profile's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. To request a free sample, go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Here on The Profile, we like to get to know someone each week, and this week's no different. When American pastor Jeffrey Brown left Bible College, he accepted a call to be pastor of Union Baptist Church in Cambridge in the US city of Boston. He moved with his family to an inner city neighbourhood near the church, expecting to settle into a fairly normal pastoral ministry. He quickly discovered the area around the church wasn't quiet and he was being asked to take funerals for young men and women gunned down in a neighbourhood as violence escalated in the city. What happened next is referred to as the Boston Miracle and is recounted in the forthcoming book The Courage to Listen, written by Pastor Brown. I met up with him during a visit to Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Reverend Brown, welcome to the UK. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, you're from Boston now. Were you born in Boston? Is that where life started out for you? No, I wasn't born in Boston, um, but I came to Boston when I was an adult, around 22 years old, going to school. I went to seminary and uh, graduated from there and started uh, enrolling in another school to uh, hopefully get a doctorate and started pastoring a church and said to myself, well, maybe about a year or two of this and then I'll go back down south. And uh, a year or two turned into 22. And so I've been there now over 30 years, probably about 33 years. So where was down south? What are your memories of childhood? My father was in the military and my mother was an elementary school teacher. So when people ask me where did I grow up, I tell them all around the United States. Uh, you could probably name the Army base and I was there. But we would spend uh, summers at our grandparents' house in North Carolina and in uh, New Jersey. So I usually call those places home. My mother eventually settled in Pennsylvania. Then uh, we sort of uh, grew up in that area in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, which is the uh, capital city. Joined the church uh, when I was 12 years old in Harrisburg and um, uh, was very active in the church, uh, sang in the choir, uh, was part of the uh, Baptist Youth Fellowship there, um, and did you know all the things that you had the young believers doing. So you've mentioned as a 12-year-old going to church in Harrisburg. What was church like for you oh. as a young person? What is church like in, oh, in sure. the kind of culture that you were in? And, and sure. what kind of neighborhood were you in? Sure. I mean, it was in the other cities. Um, and uh, the church that, that I attended was a very prominent Baptist church in the area. The pastor there was an, an active leader in the civil rights movement. Not only did we have uh, you know prominent civil rights leaders come through, you know, the church had a lot of um, active civic leaders um, who were also believers and attended the church. And so it was a very vibrant church. Um, the worship services were, you know, traditional uh, black Baptists, you know, very uh, energetic and lively. Uh, the music was always uh, really good. Um, my pastor 
the Reverend Franklin Henley was um, uh, not only just very astute uh, gentleman, but he was um, a, a really wonderful preacher. Uh, for a time, um, I had left my home church and uh, followed uh, a ton of students uh, and young people to what we would call a Baptocostal church, which is a um, it's a Baptist church, but it's a lot more lively and energetic than a traditional Baptist church. And a lot of the young people were attracted to that and attracted to the um, the citywide choir that um, was a part of that church. And, you know, after maybe a couple few years, um, it became clear for me that I needed to come back home to my home church. And so in between, you know, going back and forth to uh, college, uh, you know, I came back to um, my home church. And, of course, my pastor was delighted uh, in, in that. But it was around that time that I started to think very seriously about the ministry and my calling and about where God wanted me to be. So was there a moment then or were there particular moments when you really felt God was saying to you, this is what I want you to do? I was in graduate school and um, what was um, amazing about uh, getting a master's of education was that the real education was in dwelling with the spirit and just really thinking very seriously about discerning where I wanted to go. And it was really in that context where God really spoke to me and said, um, you, you're about to begin, you know, this journey, but it's, but it's not in, in education. It is, um, it's about, um, you know, really going into ministry and, and, uh, being a servant to, uh, the people. While I was in that context, you know, I really challenged God, you know, did a what I would call a Gideon moment where, um, you know, I applied to 10 seminaries and I said to um, the Lord, you know, uh, uh, if I get into one, then then that's proof that, you know, you wanted me to go. And uh, incidentally, though, when I applied, I applied very late into the application process. It was like in the summertime, like in July, August. And so I didn't think I was going to get into any of them. And it was almost a way for me to say to the Lord, well, see, there you go. I didn't get in. So maybe there's something different going on here. But I did get into one. And that was Andover Newton Theological School in Newton, Massachusetts. And the Lord said, you're going there. And the moment I arrived there, I realized that this is exactly where I need to be. So there was no sense that you felt you were going to be called back to the south. Suddenly, yeah. God was speaking to you and actually saying, Boston's where it is. Yeah, Boston where it is. And and it was really interesting because Boston is, and, and New England is unlike any other place in the United States. You know, the worship styles are different and the people are different. And so I wasn't really used to, you know, the the way people acted and reacted. The churches that I would go to visit were interesting, but I, I didn't find the place until I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts and Union Baptist Church. And uh, the pastor there was someone who came from Arkansas. So his his worship style and, and the way he preached, I was very comfortable with that. So I immediately joined that church. After some years, it, it became clear that the Lord wanted me here, and he wanted me here for a particular reason. So for people who've never been to America, New England is a bit more like England, and mm -hmm. you know Cambridge is actually part of mm -hmm. 
Boston itself. Absolutely. Cambridge is um, really across the river uh, from Boston. They're sort of right next to each other. Boston is a wonderful city. It's like a walking city. It's very uh, small in terms of um, space that it occupies. So you're blessed by being called to ministry in Boston. So what are your memories of your first church and and how you ended up being called to that specific church and -hmm. and whereabouts was it and what was the community like? Sure. Uh, So the church that I first joined when I arrived was Union Baptist Church in Cambridge. And while I was in seminary, that's where I did my field education and basic seminary training. Probably about a year, a year and a half into my arriving there, the pastor of the church uh, found uh, another church in Washington, D.C., and and left the church. And so the church was without a pastor. And there were many ministers on staff, and I assumed that as the church would go through the process that they would pick one of those ministers and and I thought that, you know, my, my goal was to get back south and to, um, you know, either be with family or, or find a church, you know, in the deeper south, uh, you know, like Atlanta or North Carolina, South Carolina. I didn't have any thoughts of actually becoming their pastor. But about a month before I graduated from seminary, the chair of the deacon board approached me and said, you know, um, we, we don't have a pastor yet, but we would love to have an interim pastor. And would you be willing to be that interim pastor? And I was young. I was 24, 25 years old. And I said, well, sure, I can help, you know, just keep things steady. But I'll only give you a year, you know. And if you haven't found someone in a year, you'll you'll have to find another interim pastor because uh, I had no intentions of staying. And so during that year, the church started to grow and uh and basically stabilize itself, which is what you expect an interim to do. But also during that process that, you know, the Lord started to speak with me. And I called my pastor and he said, well, you know, this is something that you really have to be prayerful about because I think his intention was for me to come back to Harrisburg and, and you know, to be an assistant pastor and eventually perhaps become that pastor of that church. Uh, so I prayed about it, and somewhere around December, I um, had a conversation with the Board of Deacons who brought me before the church, and they decided to um, uncall me as the interim and then call me as the pastor of the church, and I was maybe about a month shy of my 26th birthday. They installed me in April the following year, and uh, the rest uh, just sort of went up from there. So you've already alluded to the time when you were interim pastor and the church started to grow. Now you've had the opportunity to kind of look back. Mm-hmm. What do you think that was going on that engaged and what was the spirit doing and, yeah. and triggered all of that? You know, um, as I was um, preaching, I, I started to realize that being an occasional preacher is one thing, but preaching every single Sunday was a different thing altogether. But I found that not only was I able to do that, but, um, you know, the, the Lord was really using me in some amazing ways that really surprised me. And so um, 
as I started to get used to that, the next hurdle for me was around leadership. I was young. I didn't know if folks would actually take me seriously as their pastor. Um, but um, as situations would come up within the congregation, you know, my handling of them were such that um, I, I can honestly say it wasn't wasn't me who um, actually sort of, you know, um, helped calm the situation, but it was really the Lord through me. And um, and I think what happened during that process is that I realized that if I would just let go and just let God use me and um, and speak through me, that, that it would be all right and I'd be able to actually, you know, pastor the church. And so that that's what happened. Um, when they, when they called me, uh, you know, it was, um, it wasn't so much a surprise, but it was just an eventuality of, of something that, um, as I look back on it was already being put in place by God before I even realized it. This was something that God was birthing there in Boston. What was the community like around the church? You know, to kind of describe the situation that you were ministering into. Mm-hmm. So it was an inner city community um, in Cambridge. Cambridge is a little different from Boston in that uh, there are a lot of universities that are connected to Cambridge, uh, MIT on one end, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard University on the other end, Tufts University, Brandeis. There are a lot of schools uh, in the Boston area and a lot of them um, were in Cambridge. So there were a lot of young people, a lot of students there. Um, And so you had a mix of students and uh, people who lived in affluence and then you had the projects, uh, which one of them was right down the street from my church. And so the congregation was that kind of a mix. So you had professionals uh, who went to school in the area, decided to stay and would join the church. You had a lot of students that would come through and matriculate, uh, uh, you know, and worship at the church while they were attending college. And then you had, you know, working class folks and and uh, folks of uh of lesser means, you know, coming and and joining the church, and so um, it was quite a mix um, in in Union Baptist, and they really needed to have somebody who could just sort of, you know, help bring everybody together. So the Lord was actually working something, you know, and preparing me for something, uh, even in pastoring the church. That must have been quite a challenge because you've got all of that range and when you come to preach where are you going to pitch it so that actually you can engage with such a wide spread of people yeah so you know that's part of the reason why if you are if you're thinking about pastoring you know the most important thing is your relationship with god and and your prayer life um because you know it it was an equation that was that was not easy to figure out and if I didn't have the Spirit of God upon me, then um, I wouldn't have been able to figure it out. Um, you know, I I just knew that it was important for me to love the people and to love all the people, and that um, and just keep you know everyone's uh, eyes collectively on the vision, and um, and you know less off of each other 
and um and we'll be able to get through it and i think that 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 really happened um i always joke that the first year that i passed it uh the membership went up only 20 members you know but um but it actually became a very um large and and vibrant church we had you know hundreds and hundreds of people join uh I don't, I don't even know how many it was, you know, over six, seven hundred that, that joined in those first years. And it was just, you know, it was just one of those wonderful moments where everybody felt like they could be a part of this collective whole, you know, with all the differences and that strengthening the church rather than dividing it. Now, it must have been possible to be overwhelmed in those kind of circumstances where suddenly you've got a church that's grown by six, seven hundred. And you've already said that how important it was that you were praying. So how did you make sure you kept yourself grounded uh, and you spent time in prayer? What was the kind of the rhythm of your life? Yeah. I'm an early riser, so you know the the prayer life and and anchoring the prayer life was relatively easy. I always tell people, you know, it's nothing like getting up in the morning and the and the sun is is rising and and you're having that conversation with God. But when you're pastoring a church, having a conversation with God uh, takes on a whole do, new dimension. You're you're talking to Him all the time, <laughs> so so um, so I find myself you know, uh, always in prayer. Um, you know, when you look at the interior of people's lives or families' lives and see the complexity of it, you realize that you, you need the power of the Spirit, you know, to help guide them and to, you know, help them uh, navigate their way through. So you have to have a healthy prayer life or, you know, you can wreck yourself very easily. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've always been, um, a biblical student and, you know, the word of God. And so, uh, grounding myself in, in the word was always important. Um, you know, I was always a, a, um, a rabid biblical scholar. So, uh, all of the study that I would put in, you know, during the week, um, you know, was really important. But in the African-American tradition, you're also a community leader. So uh, grounding myself in the community and trying to understand and discern what's happening in that larger community and how it applies to your congregation and to believers that are there in the city was really important. So, you know, balancing all that became really important. And and, uh, and that's what I did. So the church was like a block away from the projects and yeah. a moment came when things changed there, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so the homicide rate started to um, to rise fairly quickly and um, there was a lot of denial in uh, the Boston area that there was a, a gang problem. Uh, but um, if you lived in the city and if you lived in some of the projects, um, that was a, a very stark reality because you'd hear the gunfire, you you knew who the players were, you'd see the guns, you know. I mean, uh, and if you had children, you were always afraid that your children could get shot. So preaching to that was important and uh, trying to work, or, you know, to, um, you know, to find ways to um, uh, bring peace to the community was important. Um, and I did everything that I could do given what I had, or so I thought. Uh, you know, so I had this congregation I preached to weekly. 
I had this um, church in which I could build programs. And I thought that if I build these programs for at-risk youth, if I preach well, then, you know, that would be my contribution. But um, as the violence careened out of control and changed the city, it became clear that we needed to do something more. And it was around that time that the uh, murder of Jesse McKee and, and Rigoberto Carrion happened. And they were uh, two students that I did not know, um, had no idea who the families were until that moment, but got to know uh, them afterwards and um, started going into that project that was down the street from my church and starting to get a different kind of understanding about what was happening there. I had members who lived in those projects and that I would go visit, but, you know, it was an in-and-out kind of thing. You know, you had a sick grandmother, I would go, and I'd visit and have prayer, but I really didn't get to know what was happening, you know, in the projects and what everyday life was like in the projects. And it was after those two youth were killed and, um, you know, and then we understood more fully the circumstances around what happened that I realized there's a whole different world that's right down the street from my church that I had no idea about. And that if I'm going to impact that in some ways, that I need to get to know that, that world. And did you fear for your own life? Did you fear for the lives of your own church members who were in the projects? Yes. I mean, uh, it was one of those things where, um, you know, and I often have people ask me, you know, were you afraid when you went out into the streets? And I would say, of course, I was afraid, but I was afraid all the time uh, because the violence was so random that anybody could get get shot and killed. I mean, there were people who were getting killed waiting at a bus stop or or, um, you know, sitting on top of them, a mailbox, uh, you know, while the kids are playing and then gunfire occurs. And remember, bullets don't have names on them. So there were folks who were getting killed just walking around the, the, the projects, you know, trying to get into their apartments. And so that fear was already there. But uh, in terms of leadership, we needed to have leaders that needed to really find the more creative and the less conventional ways, I would say, of um, uh, addressing the issue. Uh, because, you know, preaching wasn't going to stop it. Uh, as much as I love the Word of God and preaching, you know, it wasn't going to stop it alone. Prayer wasn't going to stop it alone. We really needed to have action behind the prayer, action behind the lived Christian life in order to make this happen. And that meant coming out of the four walls of our sanctuaries and meeting the youth where they were because they weren't coming in. And was this something that you were pretty much doing on your own or did the congregation mm -hmm. engage with this and, uh, and there were other key people who were able to join you and, and a vision started to take place? Yeah. Well, the vision started to take place when other pastors were experiencing very similar things that I was experiencing. And um, it was a tragedy that sort of brought us all together uh, of, um, of a shooting and a stabbing that happened inside of a church during a wake at a funeral. Um, and, and that sort of brought 
me together with folks like Ray Hammond and Eugene Rivers and and Sam Wood and um, Hesse Harris and Gilbert Thompson and Nellie Arborough and Susie Thomas, and we all sort of come came together because we had that that very similar experiences of realizing that they weren't coming in our churches. We needed to come out of our churches and meet the youth where they were if we're going to find a way through this violence. And so we started to walk collectively together. The reaction that came from my church initially, if, if, if I were to be honest, uh, was not uh, positive. Um, you know, there were a lot of people in my church who felt that I was going outside of the purview of what I was supposed to do as their pastor. And they thought that, you know, um, that that was unnecessary extra work. Um, I remember Emily Boone, God rest her soul, uh, at a Baptist quarterly meeting, you know, standing up and pointing at me and said, God didn't call you to be in the street. God called you to preach and to visit the sick, which meant visit her, by the way, and, you know, do Bible study, and and that's that's your job. And so um, I got that kind of resistance uh, when it happened, and, and it continued for quite some time until I started to reach the nephew that they didn't like to talk about or the granddaughter who was out there on the street who shows up in church one Sunday and the grandmother says, what are you doing here? And she says, I saw Reverend Brown last night and he told me to come through and so here I am. So when that started to happen, then the support around what I was doing began to build. And then some of uh, you know my men in the church started to say, well, we can't have you be out there by yourself. You know, We'll come out there with you. And we started to gain that laity support, which I think is so vital you know, when you do these kinds of movements. So you were getting support from the church. Eventually you were out on the street meeting these gangs. When did the the police and the city start to take you all seriously? Well, I think they started to take us seriously at around the same time that the gang members started to take us seriously. We were out on the streets and we were walking collectively. And um, around that time, it was uh, in Boston and in, uh, at the time, the most dangerous neighborhood in the city. And we were out there at night, 10 o'clock at night, and we'd walk till the wee hours of the morning. The gang members started to take us seriously when they realized that we weren't going to stop doing this work, that we were going to keep doing it, that the, all the excitement of what happened in that church during the wake, uh, when that died down, they thought that our effort was going to die down. But when they saw that we kept going, then, you know, they saw that we were serious. And secondly, they saw that we weren't out there to exploit them. You know, because there was always uh, a minister and, you know, I'm not trying to be disparaging of ministers, but, um, you know, sometimes you'll have someone who will go out into the community and they'll say, we need to take back the streets. And they always seem to have a reporter with them or a television camera, and they would enhance their reputation to the detriment uh, of those who are out there on the streets. Uh, And when they saw that we didn't have any reporters, we didn't have any cameras, that this was not the reason why we were there, but we were there for a different reason. Then the gang members took us seriously. And then we found out that the police, for the same reasons, 
began to take us seriously, that we were out there because we were looking for a different kind of solution and that we weren't out there to build a reputation, but we were out there to actually see the violence uh, go down. And so um, not every clergy person uh, was doing this work and uh, they were keenly interested in talking with us. And I have to say also, it wasn't the... um, it didn't come from the top down, so it wasn't the commissioner or the command staff or the district captains, but it was the gang unit officers, you know. So they would call us and say, you know, you guys are doing this over here. What's that all about? And we would tell them. And Boston was just beginning their community policing program, and so they were trying to figure out ways in which they can work with the community to, uh, you know, reduce the violence. And so we said, hey, we're out here you know, work with us. So how did you prepare yourselves when you were going to go out on a night? How did you dress? How did you mm-hmm. equip yourselves to, to, to walk into these kind of situations? And, and what kind of number of people were being murdered and shot? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, back in those days, uh, you know, there were highs of like um, 150, 152 homicides, 1,100 gun shootings. Uh, so for a population of 700,000 in a in a in immediate city area, that's pretty intense. There were nights in which we would go out and you can hear gunfire. Sometimes uh, there was one time where uh, we were sitting in the house and uh, I think we had just got back in and there were shootings that were happening right outside outside the house and we all had to sort of hit the deck. So I'm not saying that it wasn't dangerous, but um, the way we prepared ourselves was was through prayer. We would all come together and we'd pray. And then uh, we would also reflect when we got back and then have prayer, you know, at the end. How we dress is an interesting question because um, at first, you know, you would think, well, you want to dress like everybody else who was out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe you could blend in or something like that. But, but when we were out there on the streets, um, what we found out is that, you know, people just want you to be who you are and they want you to. You know, uh, that includes how you dress, you know, you dress, you know, how you are. Oftentimes I would have a service or an event, you know, on a Friday. And so when I would go walking, I would still be in my suit. Sometimes I'd still have my collar on, you know, and I would just go out there like that, you know. And I remember one time I didn't have anything going on. So I had a pair of jeans on and I had a shirt and I kind of went out there. And the guys looked at me like, what are you doing out here looking like that? Like, we expecting the suit, you know. And I said, well, I'm not always in church, you know, on Friday night. Sometimes I had a Friday night off, you know. And we sort of laughed about that. But the, the idea was if you're going to do this work, do it, you know, through who you are. And uh, don't change the way you are, you know, because um, what they abhor is somebody who is actually, you know, being fake about who they are. And so um, so that's how we would do it and whatnot. Uh, and as we would train other ministers to go out there, we would say the same thing, you know. So if you're not used to, uh, you know, wearing sneakers and jeans and all that, then don't do it. You know, just be who you are. And what was important was not how you dressed, but how you related to people, how you built relationships with folks, how you talked to the young people. They weren't into you preaching to them. It was not about 
bringing sermons to the streets, but this was about being the Bible, you know, instead of, uh, you know, showing the pages and uh, and listening and trying to, you know, seriously build relationships with them. And that speaks very much into kind of modern day evangelism and outreach, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. It's being Jesus, being a real person and engaging with people mm-hmm. in a real way, wherever they happen to be, not just being inside church. Absolutely. It, it really is contextual and relational. It's very different. And I always tell people, um, you know, uh, we're out here in order to build relationships. We're not out here to, uh, you know, collect souls. This is not a soul counting, you know, adventure where you are able to go to a meet and say, guess how many souls I saved today? You know, that kind of stuff. What a lot of folks don't realize, especially in, you know, in inner cities torn by violence or even war-torn areas, is that the reputation of the church at the street level leaves much to be desired. There are people who have been rejected by the church. They have been abandoned by the church. They have been mistreated by the church. And you you find that out if you don't preach and listen to, you know, people's stories and 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 their journeys. And um, you know, and so it's about ministering to those needs and not worrying about, you know, are 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 they going to be saved because you leave that to the Holy Ghost, you know, and just as the Spirit led you, you know, to Jesus, the Spirit will lead them also. Uh, and some, you know, of my evangelical friends get nervous about that. But then I point to James and I say, you know, when there's someone hungry, you don't feed them the gospel first. You feed them food first. You, 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 you know, you clothe them. You, you, you take care of their needs before you go into that. And this is that kind of process. And I think this is the new evangelism. And you didn't quite freak your congregation out as gang members started to come to church on a Sunday. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> um, you know, it, it meant from some, some awkward moments at times, you know. I always told uh, the young people that I was out on the street, I said, you don't have to come to my church if you don't want to, you know. There are other churches or, you know, or we can be out here together and we can share together, you know. But there would be some who would would come and they would join, and um, you know, and you know, there are some folks who were, how do we say, um, used to people being a certain way and worshiping a certain way, and you know, so when you know in our church it's always a call response you know pattern to preaching so somebody will say amen or somebody will get up but if they they see somebody get up and start fist pumping they're like what is that all about i'm like that's where they are right now so don't bother them you know but they're excited you know they're enthusiastic about what they're hearing and that's the important thing and so of course that there's some differences but you know at the end of the day you know we are all people on this earth, you know, seeking the deep in our lives, you know, uh, and and seeking a, a deeper spiritual life. And so helping that journey is so important. I always tell my congregants that um, when we don't change and and be more relational and, and understand context more, uh, that people will find spirituality you know, in their own ways. I always say 
that uh, when I went out into the streets, I thought I was bringing Jesus to the streets, but then I found out that God had beat me to the streets already. You had young people who were already out there seeking some type of spirituality. You can't be around life and death issues on a nightly basis like that and not think about the deeper interior aspects of your life and of living. And so, you know, when someone would get killed, uh, they would always erect these memorials, you know, so there would be um, teddy bears and candles and, you know, other types of things that they would sort of put around uh, flowers, you know, around the person, the place where the person was killed. And people go around and, um, and they stand around. But the process that they're engaged in is not some type of physical process. They really are engaged in a spiritual process. They're trying to make a connection to the spirit of the person that they loved or were friends with. And I always say to folks, you know, um, that's the reason why we need to be out there. I've done this work for over 25 years, and I have been in dozens and dozens of cities at night, you know, 11 midnight or beyond and i've seen these memorials and and i have walked up to memorials in all of these cities and there are always people standing around them and there has never been an, a, a moment where i walked up and said would you like to have prayer that a person refused they all welcome it and they welcome that guidance that we could provide you know as they're trying to understand what happened and what's happening inside of them as they are standing there at this memorial like those are tremendous opportunities you know for us to be able to share and to be the bible you know that god wants us to be do you remember particular people people who were shot and lost their lives people that you knew and and even now they're still in the back of your mind yeah yeah there's yes i do remember one young man who um in the early part of the work that we've done was um was really a guide for me he was a young he's a drug dealer he was a gang leader he was he led his uh group of youth um young himself but he was a, a brilliant mind um, and he, he loved to talk and, 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 you know, I loved to listen to him. He was just a, you know, he, the way he was able to put things together was just extraordinary. Uh, I, you know, and I've found that some of the most creative and intelligent and inventive people that I've ever met have been on the street. And he was one of them. At some point, um, as we all were ministering to him, he decided that he wanted to, um, change. He wanted to get out of the life. And he wanted to um, become something different, maybe even a minister, you know. So we were like, hey, you know, I'm telling you, things have happened, you know. Um, uh, you know, ask Tom Skinner, ask, you know, uh, David Wilkerson, you know, crossing the switchblade and all of that. The difficulty of getting out was sort of illustrated in his life uh, when it became clear that the money that he was making was also supporting his larger family. And so although he had family members who said, you know, we want you out, too, so you got to do that. But he could see the difficulties that his family was going through. He was looking for a regular job and we had connections. And so we had gotten him a job and he was supposed to start on a Monday. 
But that Friday, uh, before the Monday, um, he decided that he was going to make some quick cash and give the money, you know, to his family before he started this job. And so he bought some drugs and started selling them. But the drugs were what they call hot packs. They were laced with, you know, something that could cause a person to overdose. And they were given to him intentionally because the the guy who sold it to him didn't want this guy to get back into the drug game. And um, and then that night he decided to use some of those drugs. And then the next morning he didn't wake up. His girlfriend woke up, but he didn't wake up. And so uh, and it was so, so tragic because uh, he was supposed to start uh, an internship, a paid internship that Monday. So I remember him. I've also had other young men that, you know, that I've talked to and things seemed to be going very well for them. And then something would happen and they would get arrested or they would get killed. When you take somebody out of the context of the gang life, sometimes there are unresolved issues, um, you know, or people who get out of jail who come looking for you and you're not prepared because you're a different person now. And that's happened uh, more than a few times, more than I care to remember. For everyone that has had a tragic end, I've had young people who um, have actually gotten out of the life and gotten into being a productive person and uh, family. I remember a year ago, I was in church and this young man comes walking up to me and he says, you're Rem Brown. And I was like, yeah, I'm Rem Brown. Of course I am. I'm like, and I'm looking at him. He looks sort of familiar, but I, I didn't recognize him. And he had four kids and, um, and his wife. And he said, I just want you to meet my wife. And so I said, how you doing? And I met her and he said, these are my kids. And I'm like, oh yeah, I see him. And I keep looking at him. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> you know? And then he says, you don't remember me. And then he tells me who he is. And what neighborhood he was from, and instantly I remembered him, and I was like, "Oh yes!" I was like, "How you doing?" This was a, a gang leader, but he was also one of the people who was very helpful uh, in helping to establish one of the many truces that we were able to do between gangs. He wanted to be um, in the trades, and so um, I had a friend, and um, I pulled a marker and got him into the uh, carpentry uh, union. And he started going. I used to take him to his tests and drive him uh, the first week to his classes. And but then after that, I hadn't heard anything. And that happens a lot, you know, and and I just assume everything went all right. But apparently it was much better than that because, um, you know, he was um, out of the city. He was in another town in Massachusetts. He they had bought a house. He had four kids. He was married and um, he was doing very well. And I was like, this is just extraordinary. You know, and he was like, I just wanted to come back and say thank you. And I'm like, don't thank me. I said, just thank the Lord, you know, because, and he's like, oh, no, that's why I'm here in church. That's why I'm here, <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay, that's good. And so you, you do have those moments where somebody will come back and, and say, you know, what you did really made a difference for me. So with all the tragedies, you have those others and it keeps you going. So you're, you're out there in the community. Uh, God is clearly at work. You're seeing the difference. Uh, crimes falling gun crimes falling 
eventually was it a phone call you got from the white house it wasn't it wasn't a phone call from the white house um but it was um i think it was somebody out of senator kennedy's office you know senator ed kennedy was the uh, u.s senator out of massachusetts and so he called and he said um the president is coming in town we would like for you to uh you know, be on a panel to talk about what we've done in Boston. And I was like, you know, can you do it? I was like, can I, can I do it? (laughs) Just tell me when, just tell me what time I'll be there. And so, uh, so we were there and it was actually at the, uh, the John F. Kennedy library and it was a large panel discussion. And, you know, we met the president and the attorney general at the time who was Janet Reno and they came in to talk about the partnership that we were able to build uh, in Boston. And I got a funny story with that. So I'm on the end of of the of the panel, and I'm just sort of, um, you know, waiting for my turn to speak. And and they turn to me and they ask me, you know, uh, what about the you know faith community and what was the importance of that? And so I started talking about that, and I started talking about how it was important to be a strong community component to any violence reduction strategy. And it really requires a spiritual discipline against the resentment that we have out in the community. And so I wasn't trying to, you know, quote scripture, but I said, let me throw a little something theological in there, you know, because I am a minister, right? And so um, so I finished my remarks and uh, then the president says, you know, Reverend Brown. And I was like, Yes, you know, he, he looks at me. He says, "What did you just say?" And I was like, "Oh, spiritual discipline against resentment." I was about to say, "You know, Reinhold Niebuhr," you know, because that's a Niebuhrian phrase. And and he said, uh, "He said, oh, he says, I like, I like what you said." He said, "Can you say a little more about that?" And I was like, "Well, absolutely." And so I started going into the importance of of having, you know. Uh, a holistic approach, which means, uh, you know, not just a physical, mental, but a spiritual approach. And then afterwards, um, uh, you know, I'm just sort of getting up and people are shaking my hand and talking to me. And I figure, well, it's just time for me to fade out. And then I hear somebody says, Reverend Brown, Reverend Brown. And it's Bill Clinton. And I was like, oh, my God, this man is calling my name. (laughs) So I walk over to him and he shakes my hand and he talks about, you know, how important it was for him to hear what I had to say. And then that began my work with Janet Reno, who was the attorney general, who thought it was equally important, you know, to have the faith community involved, you know, in these public safety prescriptions. And so I started traveling, uh, you know, around the country, you know, to communities, uh, talking about what we did and talking to pastors and uh, and other, um, uh, you know, parachurch leaders, you know, about what we were doing and why it was important that they continue to do this kind of work. So was that your one and only meeting with uh, President Bill Clinton or were there other presidents along the way? Well, you know, that was my one and only meeting. uh, Well, actually, I had several meetings after that with the president, Uh, some of them large groups, some of them small groups. But most of my work was with uh, the attorney general at that time and working with the Justice Department as they expanded their, you know, understanding of their community component to their uh, violence work. 
I didn't get any phone calls from George Bush or, you know, or anything like that. I have done some work uh, in within the Obama administration with the Justice Department, but that's been around police community relations and uh, particularly police reform, you know, with some of the uh, departments and, and how they've been working in communities of color. So I've been a part of some of the evaluations, you know, with some of these communities. And how did you find the Obama presidency? Well, you know, he, he was my president. I voted for him twice. So <laughs> despite the um, enormous negative reactions that he had, you know, virtually throughout his entire presidency, I think he did an extraordinary job uh, in not only, you know, you know, writing the economy and, you know, getting it back, uh, you know, on its proper path. But, you know, and a, a lot of the, you know, many, many things that he did for large sections of, of the American populace, you know, with health care and, and even with um, violence reduction and police reform. I think that was really, really critical work. Uh, so I was happy when, when uh, you know, when I got the call, you know, to work, you know, with the Department of Justice, you know, around those issues. Uh, and I'm only sorry to see him go. And now, of course, America is on a totally new adventure and nobody quite knows where it's going to go. I, I like the way you characterize it, a totally new adventure. <laughs> it, it certainly is. Um, I think what's really scary about what's happening is that it has become painfully clear to many of us that a lot of the things that we've been working around, you know, in our in our inner cities, for example, and, uh, you know, improving the relationship between, you know, law enforcement and communities of color, for example, uh, that a lot of that work, you know, appears to be threatened, you know, by this new approach uh, that's being touted by this new administration. Regardless of, of, of how you lean, um, you know, that kind of reform, if it gets, you know, retarded in any particular way, really will cost lives, damage relationships that we have been painfully building over years and, and re-knitting communications, uh, communication lines and, and trying to get people to see that, you know, we all have to work together. I've done this work too long to know that we cannot arrest ourselves out of the situation. More cops will not be the answer. It's about a balance of bringing law enforcement in line with, you know, like-minded community leadership and uh, other, you know, sectors of civil society to ensure that we can have a safe and peaceful community for everybody. And that's the only way to do it. And it's been difficult to try to put that together and to just sort of erase that in a series of tweets, uh, you know, is really galling. Reverend Brown, thank you so much for sharing with us on Premier Christian Radio. Thank you so much for having me. God bless. Thank you for listening to The Profile with my guest today, American Pastor Jeffrey Brown. I hope you've been inspired by the real-life story of the Boston Miracle. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. To request a free sample, go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can by email to writeofreply, or one word, at premier.org.uk.